Jude. As we're going through First and Second Peter this summer, it'd be good to have those with you, and then you can take your notes, take them home, and do some additional study. Because um, we're going to dig into a little bit more than what... Uh, it's going to be an, ex- an expositional study of sermons. So we're just taking the Scriptures, going verse by verse, and digging through them. And, and hopefully you can come away with a lot uh, of meat that you can use in your life on a daily basis. I want to begin here. I don't have a whole lot of time today because there's so much I want to get across to you, so I'm going to skip the introductory parts and just say, let's get our Bibles and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning about verse 13, and we're going to see what Peter has to say for us today. Um, he's writing to the elect, to the chosen, is what he says. In other words, those who are Christians whom God has called, and they're in the area of, of northern Turkey. Um, Asia Minor, and and different regions that are spread out up in that that area. He says he identifies them as participants in the living hope that they have, and it's found only in Jesus Christ. And and so he says they have privileges and responsibilities as a result of their salvation that they have received. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, verse 13 through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glories like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So as we look at what he's asking them to do in this passage of Scripture, uh, he, he understands that, that they have been called by God. They are preparing themselves for a, a persecution time. And so he, he says there are certain obligations that you need to be active in, in, in pursuing up till that time. The first is this. He tells them, prepare your minds preparing your minds. He says that in verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Orient, in Asia Minor, was a part of the Orient uh, that Peter's writing here. Um, 
they had some customs that we need to understand as we're looking at this. I know we're reading the words preparing your minds. Some translations may have the word gird up your minds. Um, in other words, this, this idea that he says here, um, it was a custom to, to, to kind of take the clothing that you had because really what they wore were those long flowing robes. Those are the pictures you might see of Jesus and the stories that we talk about. And, and so in that culture at that time, men did not wear pants or shorts or anything like that. They wore robes and gowns just like anybody else. Everybody wore that. And so Peter is saying to them, what you need to do is to prepare your minds, to gird up your minds. And so often we picture Jesus in these robes and others in these robes. And so when they wished to prepare themselves to fight or for work, they had to bind up their garments and then tie it with a belt around their waist. In essence, then it would kind of create like a shorts for them or a pants so that they would not be hindered, they would not trip, they would not fall. It would give them an opportunity to run at full speed if they needed to. They could do those things. And so he says in his figurative language here, we need to gird up our minds, we need to prepare our minds for action because something is about to take place. Our equivalent might be you know, to roll up our sleeves or to take off your jacket, to get rid of those things that might encumber you from, from working and get, getting busy. And so he wants us at the very beginning of this passage is to prepare our minds for action, getting a hold of our thought processes so that when we then come into the position of persecution, we're prepared to take whatever comes our way mentally. And it is a mental game when you're taken into persecution. The truth is that we really can control what kind of thoughts we focus on. It's not that somebody else inputs the thoughts and then we can't get them out of our head. We're the ones who concentrate on those things. And so he says, learn how to prepare your thought process so that you can think about things that are going to be necessary for you as you go through the upcoming persecution. So the first thing that they're to do is to make up their minds on what kind of topic they're going to think about when the hardship comes. Next he says he's asking them to be sober-minded. professor I had at St. Louis Christian College years ago, Albert McGee, when we would get ready for a test, he would say, okay, fellas, it's time for you to get a hold of your full mental faculties. All right, get it, So you can think clearly about what you're going to do. We would gripe about sometimes these tests. He might walk in and, and write on the board about 50 new Greek words and their definition right along with him. He'd say, you've got five minutes, memorize these, we're being tested. Yes, we would complain. There is no way. There's no way possible we can do that. You'd be surprised how much you can do when you really begin to focus and so that's what Peter's telling us here in this passage. Focus your thoughts, be sober-minded, get yourself ready so that you clear everything else out so that there's nothing else within your mind except that which you are supposed to think about. It's all about self-control, and there are things in this world that create the inability to think correctly. Things such as alcohol, or drugs, or pornography, or baseball games when the Cardinals are losing. Uh, yeah, you got it, you know, right? Or maybe it might be a podcast that you're listening to or the music that you enjoy playing or sometimes the other media that's out there. And it takes your thoughts to places that it ought not go and you can't focus but on those things. And so he says we need to make sure that we clear everything out so we can be sober-minded. 
And as Christians, we need not allow anything to interfere with our ability to concentrate on the fiery trials of persecution that may come our way. So put our hearts and our minds there. I mean, we are, we are so easily distracted, squirrel. Right? And, and you've seen it. People, they can lose their thought instantly. And probably some of you have already done that. You've thought of so many other things already in just the short time that I've been speaking. But we need to learn to focus our thoughts. So Peter tells us, be sober-minded. Prepare your minds. And then he tells us to set our hope or fix our hope on something. Now, I understand that hope can change a man's behavior. People have known to alter their, their lifestyles because of hope for something, like hope for a new car. And so they're going to they're save up and they're going to not do certain things. Or maybe it's hope for a new house or hope for a new body. And so we, we do things because of this hope that we will change whatever. Hope for home has often been able to sustain many a soldier or a prisoner of war to go through the, triary, the fiery trials that they are facing at those times because they look forward to one day walking back through their door and feeling safe at home again. In a similar way, the hope of the future that a Christian cherishes enables him to endure the trials that might come his way. So that's what Peter is telling us. Prepare your minds, be sober-minded, fix your hope, set your hope on this. But what do we set our hope on? He says it's the grace that's that's to be brought to you at, at the time that when Jesus comes again, at the revelation of Jesus. So we're talking about His second coming. How many times do you think about Jesus returning on a daily basis? Is that something that goes through your mind every day? Or is it something that just periodically happens? In the context of this, the grace that Peter is talking about that Christians are going to receive includes the resurrected and glorified body that they're going to receive when Jesus comes back. That they're not going to have to deal with the physical disabilities. It's going to be with with the, the opportunity for our judge to say to us, well done. Your your penalties have been paid because of Jesus. We focus on the glory and the honor and the inheritance, he says, which is imperishable. And it's the salvation of our souls. As each day passes, God is working and moving toward the ultimate goal of the fulfilling of the redemption of all mankind that will put their faith and their trust in His one and only Son, Jesus. So grace is already in the process of being brought to the Christians and redeeming us and making us to be who we ought to be. Now the second thing he tells us, beginning in verse 14 through 16, he says that we're supposed to purify your souls. How do we do that? Well, to begin with, out of obedience. He says in verse 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We're supposed to be children of obedience. I mean, that's the kind of kids that I wanted. 
children who would obey me as soon as I said something. The problem is they were like me. (laughs) And we're always not that obedient. But if we're going to be Christians, we are supposed to be obedient children of God. And that's in contrast to the children of disobedience that that Paul talks about when he writes to the church in Ephesus. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, the children of God are supposed to possess within them this characteristics called obedience. And this obedience is the foundation of our call to holiness and to purity. So if we are going to purify ourselves, the first thing we need to be is we need to be obedient children. And then no longer conform ourselves to the patterns of this world. That seems to echo what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, when Paul writes, he says, do not be conformed, and when Peter writes, do not be conformed, that word conformed can also carry with it the word fashioned. I think about the fashion industry in our world when I think about that. In other words, we ought not to take the image of what is popular in our modern culture and try to look like that. We are supposed to be clothed in Christ, not clothed in Gatur or whoever else is out there making clothes. There should be something different about how we look. And as Christians, we should be set apart different than what the world says is in vogue. Now, I kind of understood that a little bit deeper meaning when we lived in the middle of a Mennonite community out in Versailles. (laughs) There's a difference in that community than living with inside the city of Versailles because they obviously are different than us. They didn't get in their pickup truck or their car and drive in and out of town. They got in their horse and buggy and they wore certain clothes that set them apart from the rest of the community. Everything about them screamed different. What is it about us as Christians that screams to the world, we are different than the world? We always try to look like them, we try to act like them, we try to have a commonality with the world. But we are called to be holy, which is set apart from where they are. He says, you had passions in your former ignorance. And that language seems to indicate to me that the the readers, they came from a Gentile background Because if they were Jewish, they would not have been ignorant because they would have had the written law of God. And so these people up here in Asia Minor, they're, they're living from a Gentile perspective and they've not studied what God wants them to do and how he, they, God wants them to act and how God wants them to respond to things. And so this is something new because they were ignorant of it. Not that they were stupid, they had no knowledge of God's desire for them. Somewhere along the line, after Noah, there was a translation drop. 
They didn't carry it forward until eventually the people up in those regions began to create their own gods and their own ideas. And they fashioned those gods after themselves. And Gentiles at that time were known as, by their desires and their passions, and they were driven and focused on those things. And they did things in their life because of their fleshly desires, because of what would bring them pleasure. William Barclay in his daily Bible study guide, writes this about this period in which Peter is writing. He says this, It's the life dominated by desire. As we read the records of that world into which Christianity came, we cannot but be appalled by the sheer fleshliness of life within it. There was desperate poverty at the lower end of the social scale, but at the top... We read of banquets which cost thousands of dollars, where peacock's brains and nightingale's tongues were served, and where the emperor Vitilius set a table at one banquet with 2,000 fish and 7,000 birds. Chastity, it was forgotten. Marshall, another commentator, speaks of a woman who had reached her tenth husband. Juvenal, he talks of a woman who had eight husbands in five years. And Jerome, he writes about there being a woman in Rome who was said to have been married to her 23rd husband, and she was his 21st wife. Both in Greece and in Rome, homosexuality was practices were so common that they had become looked into as the normal or natural thing. It was a world mastered by desire whose aim was to find newer and wilder ways of gratifying its lusts. Now that is the community in which Peter is writing at this time. And he's trying to introduce them to Christ and to holiness of lifestyle. I mean, this, is, this goes contrary to everything that they've ever known. So he says, Christians need to be very sober or they will find that their desires, just like those in the world, are triggered. Now, we're the same way. Think about Hollywood. The movies that are coming out today, the media that's out there, just get onto YouTube or some of these other uh, social apps that are out there. And you look, and all we see is a world that is focused on lusts. But he calls us to be holy, because he is holy. We're only to compare ourselves to God, and like him, we're to refrain from the passions of this world that set ourselves apart as pure and holy. But the problem is that we like to understand God in our own terms. And so through the years, men have made God within their own image, with their own desires, with their own interests, their own likeness, and then they attribute those unrighteous acts and those unholy deeds to their gods. Just share, share one with you, for example. Uh, the Greek god Dionysus, or Bacchus, the god of wine, he was a drunkard and he would drive his chariot drunk. 
Now, we know that that's dangerous, isn't it? Even if we don't have our chariots, even if you're in a horse and buggy, it'd be dangerous to be driving it drunk. The other Greek gods and goddesses, they could seduce each other's mates. Moloch, Baal, and Dagon, the gods of the people that surrounded the nation of Israel, the way in which you worshipped them was by doing immoral and abominable things, sometimes even sacrificing your children to the fire. But the God of the Bible is different. He's a holy God. And he is called the Holy One of Israel, indicating that he is separate from every other thing out there. Anything that is morally impure or evil. So however we live as Christians, we are to live first and foremost holy, set apart. You cannot participate in the things of this world and still say, look at me as a Christian. Because it brings a negative connotation to the one whom you've aligned yourself with. That's why Peter says in verse 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. As Christians, we should be perfecting holiness in our lives daily as we grow more and more into the image of Christ by His Spirit's working in our life. Now, the, now the second way to purify our, our souls is this, reverence. So Peter writes, beginning in verse 17, And if you call Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sakes, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. You see, verse 17 through 21 in the Greek language is actually one sentence. And it's best understood in light of the what they call the leading imperative, the leading command, the leading verb, which is this, conduct yourselves with fear. Why fear? Why should we be afraid of God? Isn't God the one who loves us? I mean, isn't that what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world. You know, we love because He first loved us. I mean, isn't He all about love? Why should we fear Him? Because God is our Father, and He is the one whom we need to give an answer to for our behavior, for our lifestyles. As a son fears his father and obeys him, 
knowing that he's going to be disciplined if he doesn't do what his father wants, then maybe we ought to consider God as our father, the one who will have to discipline us if we don't do as he desires. We need to keep his commands. But we don't keep his commands just simply because we're afraid of him. We keep his commands because we love him. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you'll disobey my commands. No, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So there's an aspect of fear or reverence, but it's also connected with love. So our obedience as being obedient children, we have to also have this reverence for him and demonstrating it by obeying his commands. And we do that because of love. Because we see there in John 4, 1 John 4, 19, that we love because he first loved us. It's not a cringing fear or a cowardice that we tremble or we have terror about it, but it's a healthy respect or a reverence for the one who has the omnipotent power of all things. Reverence is an attitude of the mind. So here he's talking about our mind earlier on. It's still staying there. So we've got to have this reverent fear of him because it's an attitude of our mind in which we are then going to live, that we're going to be aware of who He is, that we're in the very presence of God, and that He is the one who speaks every word and performs every action, who lives every moment conscious of God, watching and passing judgment. That person then is in reverent fear of God. Do you ever think you can hide from God? I mean, we like to play hide and seek, don't we? I mean, we teach that to our children. Why? Oh, because Adam and Eve taught it to us. We think we can hide from God, but the reality is when God asked them, where are you? It wasn't because he couldn't see them. It was because he wanted them to figure out where they are in their relationship to him, what they had done. We can never hide from God. Once we've reached our reward in heaven, we'll no longer live in fear because fear will no longer be needed. Because we will truly and fully be holy. Now in verse 18, he, he speaks and he uses this word ransomed. Maybe it can also be translated redeemed. And that word is taken from slavery. A man was ransomed or redeemed, in other words, brought, bought back out of slavery. When Rome came in and conquered a country, they would then find the people who were skilled in special trades and they would take them away and they would use them as slaves to accomplish the tasks that they had in mind for their specific skill set. However, the friends or the family, if they could raise enough money, they could travel after they had found out where the kidnapped person had been taken. They could then bargain and barter with the master of their loved one and maybe pay a penalty a fine of some kind or a gift and, and buy back their freedom. That's what he's talking about when he uses this word ransom. The Christian should remember that we have been freed from our slavery to sin and from our old pagan lifestyle by the price was paid was greater than silver or gold because it was paid with the precious blood of Jesus. The lifeblood of our Savior was given to us. 
It reminds me of Mark 10, verse 45, when Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to, be, but to serve and to give his life as what? A ransom for many. We're enslaved to our own passions. We've been enslaved to sin. And Jesus is the one who sought us out and he bought us back. He has ransomed us. When you consider what he went through, he was without blemish or spot. He was perfect. He was holy. He was without sin. Without blemish means without any kind of moral defect. I mean, there was no blemish of character in him. He was perfect in his character. Without spot means that there was no physical defect in him either. He was without spot in this world, unstained by the evil that he lived amongst. And we consider that. And surely when we think about this great price that was paid by God to free us from our slavery of sin... Why would we go back to it? You see, the nature of God's sinless lamb is here found in verse 20. It's presented under two different aspects, his preexistence and his incarnation. You see, the death of Messiah was not the result of a, a change of purpose uh, to, to, to meet an unforeseen circumstances that God created the world perfect and we messed it up, so now he's got to come up with plan B. No, when you, when you understand this, this was a part of his plan from the very beginning, even before the foundation of the world was laid, he had determined that he was going to send his son into the world to redeem us, to buy us back to himself, even when we choose to walk away. Revelation 13.8 speaks of Jesus as being the lamb who had been slain from the foundation of the world. God's eternal plan had to be put in action, and it was made operational something that could be seen in contrast to Jesus' preexistence when we could not see him. And we're seeing the invisible qualities of God. But now we're going to be able to see him face to face in the reality of humanity by the incarnation. And we see that in the passions that he had while he lived here. And we see that in his resurrection, even from the grave and to his exaltation in heaven today. And so we can see as Stephen says, look, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. All of this has been done for our sake on account of us so that our faith and our hope are in Him. When we understand that our Heavenly Father planned in advance for our benefit, then I think that gives us more reason to, to live a life of obedience and reverence to Him. Well, finally, he says we need to pour out our love. So let's look at verse Peter chapter 1, 22 through 25. He says, having purified your souls, by what? By our obedience and by our reverence. By your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word that remains forever is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Verse 22 and 23 form one sentence, and the imperative in this sentence is love one another. And that's the main verb. That's the main action that we take away from that. What do we need to do? Well, we know we need to be holy. We need to conduct our lives in in such a manner. And now we need to learn to love one another. But before we can love with a sincere love, our soul needs to be purified. That's what he was just telling us to do. Man is made up of body, mind, and spirit. Listen to what Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when he commits his first sin, the spirit of man, the, the, the part... It ceases to function, and then we're, the Bible speaks of, of us as being spiritually dead because we are fleshly or we are natural. Now, the devil has the ability then, because our spirit is dead, to stir up within our minds and our bodies and desires, and he plants thoughts in our minds. And when the human spirit functioning to guide man, his body, will be defiled then with all these evil thoughts, sinful actions, and a selfish love. We love, why? In order to get something. I love you because. I love you if. I love you when. Because that's our natural flesh. But when a person becomes a Christian, Peter tells us his spirit is born again. That's what it says there in verse 23. And then he can practice self-control. He can resist the devil's overtures and enticements. And the actions prompted by his own soul now are being made pure. And his love can be directed towards others rather than his own self-centered being. In a spiritual sense, the phrase here implies a consecration to God's service and an inward cleansing of our heart from all things that would defile us. Obedience to the truth is a condition of our purification. We recognize what Christ has done for us and the salvation that He has offered us, but we cannot just stop right there and say, well, I'm saved, that's it. I can do whatever I want now. You can't. There has to be an obedience that follows and the purification process that continues on. We are being sanctified daily by the work of the Spirit on our lives, by our obedience and by our reverent fear of Him. And so this this point points back to our time of conversion when we put our faith and our trust in Christ and when we we confessed Him as Lord and Savior and we repented of our sins, we were baptized into His name. It points back to the completed action in the past with lasting results and it's because we have been purified that we are now in a purified state that we're able to love in a way that we never really could love before. So obedience to the truth is another way of expressing faith, and it involves hearing the Word 
and submitting to that message and then doing what it says. James put it this way when he writes to the church. In James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We cannot just accept the grace and the goodness and the mercy and the love of God and then continue to live as if we are in this world moving by our desires of the flesh. You've got to be set apart for holiness. We've got to purify our souls and allow Him to work in us so that we become more and more like Christ. Jesus has insisted that sanctification is in the truth and that men are sanctified in truth. So He he speaks this in John 17, verse 17 and 19. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And for their sake I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now we think about this. How are we sanctified? We're sanctified by spending time in His Word because His Word is what's going to grow in us and it's going to help change us to be more like Christ. And so He says, not only that, but I consecrated myself. I set myself apart for the practice that I would be able to sanctify them in truth as well. We then have to trust that Christ is doing everything for us so that we can learn to love one another. And he uses a word in this, love one another earnestly. That term earnestly, ektenos, it means to stretch out intensely with all your energies and strain to the limit. Years ago we brought in one of these inflatable games and it was a bungee run. And the goal was to be able to take whatever this bag was, and to get it up into this area. But you had a a belt with a bungee strap attached to you. And you had to run, 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 run as far before that strength of that bungee cord yanked you back. All right? Sometimes, you know, football players will do this. They will be put attached to something, and they're pulling, 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 and everything is trying to pull them the other direction. And so this is what it says, this earnestly... Straining forward, putting everything you've got into it, you are to love one another earnestly. We move forward. Now the other time that this word earnestly is used in the New Testament, ironically it's used in the book of Acts chapter 12 about Peter. Peter has been arrested. Herod has thought that, hey, The Jews really liked it when I killed James. That's pretty good. I I wonder if I can kill another one of these guys, and then we'll we'll have, you know, they'll like me even more. All right. So he's he's got Peter arrested during the the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which precedes the Passover. So he's not going to do anything until after Passover. Then his plan is I'll keep him in prison until then, and when Passover is done, then I'm going to execute him. But you read in Acts chapter 12, but the church prayed earnestly for Peter. And what happened? Well, obviously Peter's alive because he's written this letter later on. 
God sends an angel down to tap Peter on the shoulder and say, follow me. Hey, don't forget, get your clothes, get your shoes and stuff, and let's go. And he takes him right out of the prison at night, and, and nobody is none the wiser. We are to love with such intensity that God takes action upon it into the lives of the people that we love. Well, since we have been born again, that's what he uses this terminology here. That Greek word is ganao. It's used two different ways. One way is conception. The other way is the birth. Now, anytime this word comes up in the Greek text somewhere, you have to determine which one it's talking about. Is it talking about conception or is it talking about the birth. You have to look at it in its context. And so we need to decide which one it is. Now, I mentioned earlier that when a man commits his first sin, his spirit dies. It ceases to function, and he becomes a slave to sin, and he lives in a body of sin. What is needed for his spirit to be reborn is a new birth. And so John 3, 6, Jesus says, "...that which is born of the flesh is flesh." And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So when the man hears the gospel and believes it, it has been conceived in his mind. And so John writes this statement in 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. When he re repents and he's baptized in obedience to the truth, the process of his new birth then is complete. So his spirit is alive and he can walk in the newness of life because that old life of slavery to sin has been broken. Paul then writes to the church in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. We then are being born again. And all that leads me to believe that the man has been redeemed, he's been purified, he has been born again because of the action of Christ upon him. And so 1 Peter 1.23 is referring to his spiritual conception where he has had the seed of the Word of God planted in him. And it has been affected by the hearing of the Word. And it's this imperishable seed. Now, in the physical conception and birth, the seed or, or the sperm, it lasts just temporarily, and it goes away. It lives only a short while. So also is humanity. Our lives are temporary in this world. We know that. 
This afternoon, we celebrate the life of a man who lived but 84 years. And we say, that's a long time. But still, it's temporary. It's perishable. But the seed, which is the Word of God, that brings about a spiritual conception, is not temporary at all. It is imperishable. It lives forever. It is abiding And this is the promise that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word of God will never become irrelevant. It will never be obsolete. It will never end. It will always be there. It is intended for all periods of time and will never be superseded in its value or its relevance by human philosophies. It is the greatest thing that there is. So Peter introduces this passage from the Old Testament as he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, he, he does his own little translation of it, as he puts it here. He says about the grass and the flowers, most grass flourish in its season. We know that. We see our grass die at the end of the summer, don't we? But in spring, it somehow comes back. And most vegetation will have some sort of a flower But it's even the shortest lived of that plant, isn't it? The plant's there a long time, and then the flower comes, and then the flower's gone, but the plant is still there. He says the same thing is about men. Men, our flesh, is temporary. It's only going to last for a little while, and then it's going to be gone. And the flower of men, the glories of men, those things that we, we relish, our, our, our finances, our wealth, our, our, our fame and our fortune, and all those different things that we do, our glories are just temporary even of that life that we live. They're not always there, but for a moment. He says, that which is begotten of perishable seed perishes as well. And so James tells us in chapter 1, verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But Peter says here in verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word of the good news that was preached to you. So Peter makes this astonishing change in his rendering of the word Lord in his writing from what is done in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. Instead of saying the word God, as Isaiah says, he uses the word Lord. So he's, he's identifying Christ Jesus as God, and it's his word. So he's Christianizing this Old Testament passage for us today. The gospel which the readers already had proclaimed to them, which had been instrumental with their new birth and their obedience to which they had purified their souls, was the word which is going to last forever. So now the obligation that these readers have is to love others just as they love Christ. Kind of wrap this up. During the 1960 presidential campaign, John F. Kennedy, he often closed his speeches with a story about Colonel Davenport. He was the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. And one day in 1789, the sky of Hartford, Connecticut, darkened ominously. I mean, it looked, it looked scary for them. And some of the representatives glancing out the windows, they feared that the end of the world 
was near. And so kind of silencing all those things, and, 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 and people were wanting to have an immediate adjournment to leave so they could get out of there. Davenport rose and he said this. He said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. The day of the Lord is coming. And the people that Peter is speaking to here in his letter, they're about to face ominous times. And the world is going to be dark and they're going to look like it's going to be the end. But he tells them you can't quit. You've got to get ready. Prepare yourselves. The same message is for us today. We've got to be ready. We've got to prepare ourselves because the end is near. Are you ready? Let's stand together as we sing.